Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter one, verses three and four this morning, but we'll begin at verse one. Second Peter one. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having established, or excuse me, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, glorious Lord, we pray that through the preaching of the word of Christ, we may abound in hope. We pray that you would raise our thoughts and desires and affections for the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray that today we would leave behind spiritual discontentment that you, thinking in our own minds, that you have left us alone. For you have not. You've given us all things necessary for life and godliness. So, We pray that this morning your promises would be made known to us again. That any who are here who are lost may see and savor the Son of God. Equip us, we ask now, in this brief time. In Jesus' name, amen. A question that we often ask ourselves, or maybe we ask other people, sometimes maybe our children when they complain is a question that goes like this. Do you recognize what you have? Do you recognize what it is that you actually have? How many of us go through life complaining in ways that go like this? I wish I had what he or she had. Or how many of us go through life saying things like this? I don't have what I need Perhaps more accurately stated, I don't have what I want. I think as we begin our journey through the book of Second Peter, we will see an answer to the question, what do we have? For if you recall last week as we began, we saw that Simon Peter, that's right, the disciple who followed Christ, who denied Christ three times, and yet who was loved by Christ and commissioned to be an apostle, that Simon Peter says that all believers have a faith, a precious faith that is the same as his and the apostles, and that it is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ who he calls God. And then he says, grace and peace can be multiplied to us. Grace and peace can be multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And we picked apart these verses last week. But then Peter says in verses 3 and 4, as his divine power has given to us all things, 
There's the answer to the question, what do you have? If you are in Christ, you have all things necessary, all things that pertain to life, that's life now and eternal life to come. We make that distinction. Some people say, I have my life now, and then one day I'll have eternal life. But really, your eternal life has already begun. If you're a Christian, you have eternal life, and you have all things necessary to be godly. You, Christian, are wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. What is it that you have? All things necessary to life and godliness. Now, these two verses, verses 3 and 4, will occupy our time this morning, and they are admittedly perhaps a little bit more difficult or challenging to put together. Sometimes longer sentences with a lot of commas can be tricky for us. So what is it that Peter is actually saying? He's just finished saying, grace and peace can be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. But then there is really one long sentence in many English translations. Let's make sense of that sentence. Let me submit to you that this is what Peter is saying. This is not so much the outline of the sermon as it is trying to piece these phrases together. Firstly, Christ's power has given us everything needed for life and godliness. That's what the first part of verse 3 is saying. Christ's power has given us everything needed for life and godliness. And then secondly, this comes by way of our knowledge of Christ who has called us. So what you have is everything that you need and it comes to you through knowledge of Christ, the one who has called you by his own glory and virtue. And then as you pick up in verse 4, it's through his glory and virtue and calling that you have been given promises. And then lastly, it's through these promises that we as Christians have become partakers of the divine nature. So if you're trying to make sense this morning of how to put verses 3 and 4 together, it goes like this. Christ's power has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. And this comes to you You appropriate this. You get this through the knowledge of Christ who's called us by his own glory and virtue. And it's through his glory and virtue that you have been given promises. And it's through these promises that you have become a partaker of the divine nature. Now, if you were to take this copy of God's word and sit with it for several hours and meditate upon this phrase, you have become, through God's promises, a partaker of the divine nature. That ought to cause you to tremble. I mean, we know that we have been born of God. We know that we have God as our father. We know that we have Christ as our elder brother, Hebrews chapter 2. But how is it that Peter can be so bold to say that we, wicked sinners, who think despicable things about others, who say things so carelessly, who often do things with our bodies that are utterly against God's law. How can Peter say that we have become partakers of the divine nature? Boys and girls, I want us to see three things this morning. In answer to our question, what do we have? 
This will help us to see how Peter can say what Peter says in these verses. What do we have? If you're taking notes, boys and girls, here are three things that we have. Number one, we have provision. I know that's a big word, but it means we have what we need. We have provision. Jesus has given us what we need, boys and girls. Secondly, we have promises. We have promises. The coming of Jesus and the message that he brings gives us promises. And we'll talk about some of those. And then thirdly and finally, we have participation. We have participation. So as you're talking about the sermon today, boys and girls, with mom and dad, or maybe later this week, you can remind them that we have provision, we have promises, and we have participation. Now let's look at these three. Firstly, we have provision. What does that mean? Well, it's not really that original to me. Look what Peter says in verse 3. As his divine power has given to us or provided to us all things that pertain to to life and godliness. Now, if you remember from our series months back in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, there Peter says that God's power keeps us saved. You want to know if a true believer can lose his or her salvation? I'm not talking about someone who prays a prayer and says they love Jesus but want nothing really to do with him. You want to know if a true believer can lose their salvation? The answer is yes, the moment that God ceases to be powerful. No, our salvation is forever kept by the power of God, so it shouldn't surprise us at the beginning of the second of Peter's letters that it's God's power that's referenced again. God's Power has given to us all things necessary to life and godliness. Now this phrase, divine power, it's interesting. One commentator notes that this same phrase, the phrase divine power, in a different language of course, Greek, but nonetheless this phrase was found on an inscription in Greece. It's a common phrase. It was found on an inscription to the god Zeus and one of the many Greek goddesses. Divine power in Peter's day was something that most people believed in. Divine power. Let's pray to the gods. Let's ask the Lord for rain. Let's ask this God to end war. Let's ask this God to give us the harvest that we need. Divine power was everywhere. But Peter tells us that it's Christ's divine power that has given us everything that pertains to eternal life. Not just the rain. (laughs) Not just this war or that war. Not just fertility or the harvest. That God's divine power, the true and living God, has given us all things necessary for life and godliness. Everything you need in your walk is provided by the power of the living God. That's what you have. Now notice later on in the letter, Peter will pick up this theme. Look at 2 Peter 1 verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the what? The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. I don't want you to miss one other thing before we move past this phrase. As his divine power has given to us, in the underlying Greek language, the construction is written in kind of two ways. First of all, the tense helps us. Boys and girls, this is a verb. This is going to sound like we're going back to school and it's still summer vacation for most of you, but it's a verb. But the tense here is in a tense that it, it means that it's, it's a done deal and it keeps happening in the present. It's, 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 it's not something that's going to change. It's a set reality and it's something that happens to us from the outside. You didn't get God's power. Rather, divine power has given to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that Christ himself is the mystery or secret of godliness. Later in this letter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, Peter is going to say that as we wait for Jesus to come, as we wait for him to split open the sky and gather his elect from the four corners of the earth, godliness is to be our posture. So we have provision by God's power for all things that pertain to life and godliness. But notice, through the knowledge of him. If you remember last week, we said that knowledge was the theme of this entire letter. It's all over the place. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. It's referenced over 11 times directly and then perhaps even more times indirectly. The knowledge of Christ. That's how this comes to us. Eternal life and godliness is through the knowledge of Christ. Maybe you're here today and you believe that there is a God. You really don't deserve an award for that because the scriptures say even the demons believe that there is a God. You may believe that there's a God. You may believe that there's something good about being religious. But if you don't have knowledge of Christ, you don't have eternal life and you don't have godliness. Oh yes, you may have cleaned yourself up on the outside. You may have curbed this addiction or stopped this bad habit. Your coworkers may say, I wish I could be like him or her. They are the model of a good citizen. And indeed, you may be a good citizen. But if you don't have knowledge of Christ, you will not be saved. It is through Christ, Hebrews chapter 1, that God has spoken. Have you received Christ? But you come to see that he is the word of God. And that life, eternal life, and godliness, or you could translate it piety, comes through knowledge of him. Believer, in this room, maybe you're thinking, I want to be godly. It's a good desire. If you want to grow in godliness, grow in your knowledge of the Son of God. Look at him. Study him. Meditate on what he's done. Think, th- think of this. You read the Gospels. Maybe you're reading in the Gospel of Matthew. And you, and you read all of the things that he says. You, you read his compassion for the lost. You see him weeping over the lost. You see him challenging with a firmness the evil of this world. Meditate on this reality. Maybe you're reading in the book of John and you see him weeping at the grave of his friend Lazarus. 
You see him angry as it were, sinlessly, at curse and death. You meditate on this. This Savior who said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, has sent his spirit into my soul to cause me to come forth and rise. You just meditate on this Savior. You think on him. You make melody in your heart to him. You watch him as he navigates the world in which we live. And you savor him. And you grow in godliness. We have provision. Number one. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And then notice this last phrase. Who called us by glory and virtue. It's an interesting phrase to translate. Most English versions differ in various ways, all arriving at a similar conclusion. How do we say this? That can be a challenge when we translate from one language to another. The majority standard Bible renders it this way. Who called us by his own glory and excellence. Think about this. You've been called according to the glory and excellence of God, of Christ. Christ has powerfully provided you with all that you need for eternal life and for godliness through the knowledge of him. You may say, I hear you, preacher. I do. I want to be more godly, but I struggle with sin. And, you know, if I just think about Jesus, how is that going to cause me to to grow in godliness in the moment? Well, what is it with which you wrestle, friend? Is your struggle lust? You look on those men or women in the world that do not belong to you and you have a desire and sometimes you want to act upon this desire. How is meditating on Christ going to cause you to be godly in that moment? Because you say to yourself, this one that I have made an object of desire and turned into a little God is one that Christ has fashioned This is one that Christ, by his word, holds together along with all of creation. This is one that the triune God providentially directs all aspects of his or her life. You begin to tell yourself the truth of Christ in that moment. Or maybe your challenge is that you want others to praise you. You want to be godly, but quite frankly, you want others to see that you're godly. You say to yourself... I hate this desire in me. I want to serve Christ. But sometimes I really want others to see me serving Christ. You say to yourself, why do I want to steal glory from the Son of God who spread his arms wide and paid for every one of my sins? You begin to meditate on who Christ is in the moment. I don't mean that you get up in the morning and you do your daily devotion and you walk away. I mean, moment by moment, you say to yourself, I am Christ's. I am owned by him. He has called me by his own glory and virtue. In this moment, right now, in this temptation, he is with me. And I will think on him. I will sing to him. I will pray to him, Lord Jesus, please rid me of this temptation now. Provide a way of escape, living Christ. Yes, believer, the knowledge of Christ is the provision for your eternal life and your godliness. 
But secondly, didn't we say we have provision, but we also have promises? For that's what Peter says. Look what he says there, verse 4. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Now this is the second time in four verses that Peter has used the word precious. He's really trying to convey to his readers that we have some precious things. (laughs) Notice that in verse 1, our faith is called precious. And in verse 4, these promises that we have in Christ are called precious. That opening phrase of verse 4 says, by which have been given to us. This is a little bit of a challenge for us as we read our Bibles. What is the by which? Well, many would make the argument that it's by the glory and excellence or glory and virtue of Christ that we have promises. Think about this. I might make you a promise, but I don't have much glory. I don't have much, as some translations might render it, excellence. But if it is by, if it is by the glory and virtue or glory and excellence of Christ that you have promises. And you can go to the bank with those promises. Now how is it that Peter would say you have been given promises? He doesn't define these promises. What are they? Well, most commentators are going to say that these are the promises of the new covenant. What's the very last page of the Old Testament say? Well, it's in Malachi chapter 3. The promise is that the messenger of the covenant would come quickly. He would come. And some 400 plus years, he came. He was born of a virgin, placed in a manger, truly God and truly man. And he is the messenger of the covenant. He brings the very word of God. And what is that covenant that he brings but a covenant of grace? A covenant that promises you life in him. Redemption, forgiveness of sins, adoption, reunion with him, heaven forever. You have these promises in Christ and they come by his glory and his virtue. So we have provision and we have promises But I want you to see a third thing, and we need to dwell here for a moment. Notice that these promises provide something for us. Now again, I know that sometimes putting phrases together may seem challenging. Look what verse 4 says. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these. What is the these? Well, the promises. Through these promises... You may be partakers of the divine nature. Now, as far as I know, partakerhood is not a word. So we had to go with participation. We have provision, we have promises, and we have participation. But what does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? Does this mean that we become God? You know, there are cults that teach such a thing, that one day you and I will be gods. We are in the process of becoming God. 
But that absolutely would be a denial of all of what Scripture teaches. But the text says what it says. How can we become partakers of the divine nature? I think as we begin to meditate on this phrase in keeping with what this paragraph says, with all of Scripture, we see that Peter is not saying that we are going to become God, but we're going to look more and more like him. We are going to image the one better and better who created us. Listen to what the Puritan Matthew Poole said about this very phrase. Quote, We are said to be partakers of the divine nature, not by any communication or giving of the divine essence to us. We don't become God. He continues, But by God's impressing upon us and infusing into us those divine qualities and dispositions knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, which do express and resemble the perfections of God and are called his image, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. The divine nature may be understood of the glory and immortality of the other life, wherein we shall be conformed to God and whereof by the promises we are made partakers, end quote. Matthew Poole is absolutely right. We don't get changed into God. Rather, God impresses us, molds us into creatures that look more and more and more like those who express certain qualities of the God who made us. Is Peter the only one who says such things, though? Well, no, listen to three different instances where Paul says similar things. Firstly, 2 Corinthians 3.18. You can turn there or just listen to it as it's read. 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, that's believers, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Believer, do you know that because you are in Christ, his spirit is transforming you to the image of the Son? Who can forget perhaps the most famous of these verses from the pen of Paul, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 and 29, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Or how about Galatians, finally, chapter 4, verse 19. Galatians 4, 19. There we read these words. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Paul in Galatians 4 is essentially saying, I'm having labor pains like a woman does when she gives birth. But what I want to see at the end of all these labor pains is that you look like Christ. That your nature looks more like a nature after the divine than the things of this corrupt world. 
So, we have participation. The Dutch theologian Herman Bovink says this about this phrase, the state of grace and of glory in which the church of Christ is a participant both here and in the hereafter is most splendidly described in Holy Scripture as the state of the children of God, as participation in the divine nature, as the vision of God, as eternal life, end quote. But the church hasn't just written about this, the church has sung about this you open your hymnal sitting there in front of you, you flip to the back and see all the various authors. One of the main authors that you will see is a man by the name of Charles Wesley. Wrote many, many hymns. Listen to one of the lyrics that he writes on this very idea. Heavenly Adam, life divine, change my nature into thine. Move and spread throughout my soul. Actuate and fill the whole. Be it I no longer now living in the flesh but thou. Elsewhere, he pens these words for the church to sing. Quote, he deigns in flesh to appear, widest extremes to join, to bring our vileness near and make us all divine. He means what Peter means. And the life of God shall know, for God is manifest below. How do we categorize this, though? Before we leave it, before we say amen and close our Bibles, how do we categorize this idea of having a participation in the divine nature? Well, maybe think about your own sanctification. Boys and girls... You spent some time last Sunday school season learning some big words of theology. You remember justification, being declared righteous? That the sinner, that's you, that's me, that's everyone who's ever been born except for Jesus Christ, the sinner stands before God as a lawbreaker, as deserving of punishment. But Christ comes and he takes the penalty for the breaking of God's law. And in God's courtroom, God the Father looks upon the Son and sees that according to his humanity, he suffered on the cross and paid the debt for sinners. And he sees that Christ perfectly kept God's law. And so looking upon the Son, he declares the sinner righteous. This is called justification. Being declared righteous because of what Jesus has done. And many of you need to hear this word. You're not ever going to be declared righteous based on what you have done. It's based on what Christ has done. Well, that's justification, but what is sanctification? We ought not confuse these. It'll make a mess of our Christian life if we do. Justification is a one-time act where God looks at the sinner and says, I will treat you as my son deserves. I will declare you righteous forevermore. I will clothe you in his robes of righteousness. It's a one-time act. Sanctification, though, is where that one who is justified grows in holiness. They look more and more like Jesus. Their desires for sin change, some more quickly than others. And they grow in this process of looking like 
Christ, of looking godly, of being holy because God is holy. One theologian writes this about our phrase and says the following words, Rather than seeing our progressive sanctification as something done for us by God from outside, by God's acting upon our minds and wills from some external habitation, or as something we do from below as we pray to God above and seek to obey God here on earth, we may take a kind of quantum leap forward by understanding sanctification as the very life and energy of God in us. We are becoming increasingly like God because we are participating more and more in his divine nature. You see, we read this phrase and we think, ooh, if the apostle Peter hadn't said that, I don't know that I'd want to say that. We become partakers of the divine nature. But of course, Peter doesn't mean you become God. He means that increasingly your soul is changed from one degree of glory to another according to the pattern of the Son of God. And you partake in a nature that is very different than, what does he say at the very end of this phrase? Than the corruption that is in the world through lust. You're being changed. Notice what he says there. And we're finished. That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You know, so often in the Christian life, we talk about escaping hell. Escaping judgment. And that's true. A believer will escape the eternal judgment of God who is just and right to punish sinners who are outside of Christ. We do escape that. The destruction that is coming on the world, we escape. But Peter says, in addition to that, we escape what? The corruption. Some translations render it depravity that is in the world through lust. How many times have you been on your face before the living God praising him that you have been freed from wickedness? We have escaped the depravity, the wickedness and reign of sin that is in the world through lust or you could translate it desire. Thus we have been freed as well from the the destruction that's coming upon it. Rather than remaining in the world full of sinful lust, we are being transformed into a different nature. Teenagers, hear me on this. Increasingly, you are living in a world of corruption. The world's always been corrupt since the fall. But in our time, in your day, in your middle school and high school and early college years, the world looks openly and joyfully more corrupt than it did during mine, than it did during your grandparents. There was always corruption, but people hid it. They certainly didn't flaunt it. But you're going to be around people who take joy in corruption and depravity. And you need to hear this word this morning and ask yourself this. Is this Christ precious enough? And is his word true? Because if that is the case, he's precious and his word is true. 
and that he saves not only from hell but from depravity, then I want to look different. I want him to change me. And when you don't have that desire, you plead with him, Lord, give me that desire. When I'm at school, this next school year, and all my friends are joyfully, gleefully excited about the corrupt things of this world, give me a desire that looks like who I am, a participant, a partaker of the divine nature. There's something otherworldly about me. Puritan John Owen says this about these promises of 2 Peter. The promises have no tendency to communicate to us the nature of the devil and to stir us up to rebellion, uncleanness, and hatred of the God of all that love that is in them. But they lie indeed at the bottom, the root and foundation of the practice and exercise of all those graces which he enumerates and from the receiving of those promises. He exhorts us. So we began with a question, what do you have? Well, maybe if you look at your bank account, maybe if you look at your job prospects, maybe depending on where you are in this life, you may look and you say, I don't have much. But when you open the word of God and you're a believer who rests in Christ, here's what you have. You have all things necessary, all things that pertain to eternal life and to godliness. We said it this way, you have provision. You have promises. And we have participation in the divine nature. Not that we become God, but that he so changes us that our nature is no longer like the corruption of this world. It looks like our elder brother. It looks like the father to whom we pray. It looks like being holy because he is holy. Have you escaped the corruption of this world, friend? Are you clinging to your sins? Are you clinging to your own righteousness? Are you leaning on self? Are you trusting that one day your good works will outweigh your bad works and God will be in your debt and have to take you into his heaven? Or have you come to see that I am living and breathing and consuming the corruption of this world and God who is holy and just is right to stamp it all out but he has sent me a messenger in his son that I might hear the words come to me and I will give you life, eternal life. I will make you godly. I will forgive your sins. I will bring about an adoption of your soul. I will love you. I will clean you. I will save you. You will go from being my enemy, fists raised at me, to being a child of God. It's not too late. If you have breath, if you have a beating heart, and you're in the hearing of the gospel of Christ, there is no reason why you can't run to Christ. What do you have, believer? everything in the world. Let's pray. Living God, help us. 
particularly when we believe that the Christian life is so challenging and we feel as though we have nothing left. Help us to see that we have everything we need in Christ by his promises for life and godliness. That our very selves are being changed from one degree of glory to another. Help your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.